Hello everyone and welcome to the Code Life podcast. I'm your host Sylvie Riendo. Today we will talk about a subject that is still highly stigmatized but yet closely linked to our everyday life. We will be talking about addiction. Nowadays we hear that people are addicted to their phone, to coffee or even to exercising. But in general, the word addiction is mostly used to describe the toxic relationships some people have with drugs or even alcohol. The image most of us have of an addict is the one of an intravenous drug user, for example. But in reality, the spectrum is much broader and diversified. In today's episode, we will address the nature of addiction and the reasons why some people may be more at risk. We will also talk about the impact of the recent legalization of cannabis in Canada as well as the recent developments on the opioid crisis. So to help us sort through all this today is psychiatrist Dr. Ronald Fraser, an authority in addictions and personality disorders with active clinical practices both in Quebec and Nova Scotia. Here in Montreal, he is head of inpatient detoxification services at the Addictions Unit and director of extended care borderline personality disorder clinic of the McGill University Health Center at the Montreal General Hospital. Hello Dr. Fraser. Good morning. Thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's uh, very generous. Before discussing the latest developments on drug use in Canada, let's talk about addiction. How do you define an addiction? So sort of in the most basic terms, addiction really refers to a loss of control. So I no longer have control over my substance. So for example, I no longer control my drinking. Now my drinking controls me. So I have this loss of control and I continue to engage in the behavior whether it's a gambling or substance use or some other behavior um regardless of the accumulating negative consequences. Basically, I'm not able to stop. I think there's a difference in the concept of addiction and a habit. Well, uh, yes, and by definition, addiction is negative. Okay. Because you're continuing to That's do when you're it going to even it. if regardless of the consequences. Okay. Um, That's when you say it's an addiction because it has a negative impact right. on it. So that. even something like like weight loss, mm-hmm. right? Healthy positive thing to a point. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes anorexia right and and then that's then that that may be that's problematic so by definition um addiction is something that has negative consequences for you and is not a positive thing addiction is a problem in north america but it is more prevalent here than in other parts of the world so there's some truth to that and there's some fiction to that. So, you know, addiction is problematic everywhere. It's more open in some societies than others. The the prevalence of the problem and the nature of the problem may be different in different cultures, different communities. So, for example, um uh gambling is is culturally much more acceptable and much more problematic in Asian countries, although it's becoming increasingly problematic here. Um, there are certain cultural factors that are protective, so you're less likely, obviously, to develop um, uh, alcoholism if you grow up in uh, Saudi Arabia than if you grow up in, uh, you know, Dublin, Ireland, yeah, that's uh, for sure. or or Canada, for that matter. 
Um, so there's a lot of factors that go go into it. Um, you know, even when we look at things like Canadian culture around drinking compared to, say, um, French culture around drinking in Europe, there, there's still alcoholism in both countries, but it may look quite different. Mm-hmm. And what about the, when we talk about the you know phone, the smartphone addiction? We can see it from pretty much everywhere. Everybody who gets a smartphone in their hands, whether it's in in Canada, China, or even Africa. Yeah, and it's a great example because it helps people sort of understand the concept of addiction. And you know, your point about stigmatization was is is dead on. You know. Because people think, well, why, why don't they just stop? Like, just don't drink, right? And it, it sounds, you know, very s- simple, and it's simply not easy. So the the cell phone example is a good one because when we talk about things like cravings, cell phones are great examples because you know you have your cell phone, and if you set it aside, or or heaven forbid, you forget it at home, right? <laughs> you you know. If you haven't checked it, you start to feel this uneasiness, right? And that uneasiness builds, right? And it's kind of silly because mm-hmm. it's a phone, right? And, and, you know, certainly, you know, when I started out in practice, we did not have cell phones, right? And, and everything worked quite well, like it was fine. Yeah. But now, you know, if you haven't checked it, that, that uneasiness, that tension, it builds and it builds and it builds until we check our phone. And then it goes goes down. And that's exactly what uh, people with addiction experience, but it may be to smoke a cigarette, mm-hmm. to smoke cannabis, to have a drink, to play a VLT. And it's the exact same idea. And so the cell phone is something everybody can relate to. Not everybody can relate to doing IV fentanyl. No, exactly. So do you think there are more, you know, if we look at the phone example, we can say that, uh, you know, whether it's a cultural thing, wherever you are on the planet, it seems you get this phone in your hand and you get that sort of addiction um, to a certain extent. But then are there, you know, types of people that are more, um, tend to be more addicted to drug, for example? What would, ex- what would explain uh, that a person gets addicted and another one not? Well, there's certainly risk factors, right? So, you know, when when we looked at something like Vietnam, you know, when Vietnam ended, um, many American soldiers were addicted to heroin. And they were addicted to heroin because there was a lot of heroin available, but also because that was kind of a stressful place to be, right? Mm-hmm. And so when they all went back to... America and went back to Maine and Iowa and New Mexico and wherever they are, 80% of uh, the soldiers gave up heroin. That was the end of heroin, right? But 20% continued to struggle with severe, severe addiction. And the strongest predictor of who would be able to give it up and who would continue to struggle was a family history. So a family history of addiction to a lesser extent of family history of mental health issues. And so addictions has a large genetic component, right? So one of the things that we struggle with in our society is we don't necessarily conceptualize addiction as a disease. Mm-hmm. But the re- reality is it has a large genetic component, and there's a, a, a lot of inheritability um, 
environment plays a role as well, obviously, like as we were talking about the whether you grew up in Ireland or, or, or Saudi Arabia, that makes a huge difference. Yeah. Um, but genetics is, is a big thing. So having a family history is by far the, the number one predictor. There's many other uh, factors, including gender. So if you're male, you're much more at risk than if you're female. Mm -hmm. If you're younger, you're more at risk than if you're older. Um, Poverty is not good for anything. So that increases your risk. But ultimately, addiction is a disease that doesn't really discriminate, right? Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I'll treat professional athletes and I'll treat homeless people and everything in between um, because addiction can um, affect anybody in our society. And I think that's the thing that people struggle with because, you know, as you said earlier, the face of addiction is sort of the... Uh, homeless IV drug user in, you know, on the downtown east side, Vancouver, like that, that's the picture. And that's certainly uh, one end of the spectrum, but it's a very, very broad spectrum. You know, there's a difference between an addiction and, a, you know, a good or bad habit. When we talk about a, a habit, oh, I have this bad habit. Uh, let's say, um, I don't know, I, I, I drink uh, coffee every morning. Is that an addiction? Is that a habit? How should we consider this? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> and, and there's unfortunately no easy answer. There's a continuum of addiction. So you can definitely be addicted to coffee, right? So... The likelihood of developing physiological dependence if you're exposed to caffeine is about 9%. About 9% of people that take caffeine will become uh, physiologically dependent. It, and most of us sort of know what that's like because it, we know what caffeine withdrawal feels like, right? So mm-hmm. we wake up in the morning and we have this thirst for caffeine. Right, so we have this craving or compulsion, and if we don't get our caffeine, we become increasingly uh, irritable. We feel fatigued, we feel lethargic because we're in caffeine withdrawal. All right, and so periodically through the day, we'll have to top up our caffeine levels. Right, so we can have a, a physiological dependence to the substance of caffeine. The difference, though, is there's, you know, the the likelihood of developing physiological dependence and then how harmful a substance is. Mm-hmm. So most people, their spouse, do not leave them and change the locks on the door and take the kids because they're going to Tim Hortons too often. Like, But if they're going to the SAQ too often, then sometimes that happens. So there's how how addictive a substance is and how harmful a substance is. Um, and and that's really what we get concerned about is when there's uh, profound negative consequences to you doing a habit or consuming a substance. Um, that's the worrisome part. If So you can have a healthy relationship with alcohol, and the vast majority of Canadians do, but about 8% of Canadians suffer from alcoholism, and, and those are the people that you know, we're profoundly concerned about. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, at some point, more alcohol, more drugs, some substance may be more harmful well, the re- and a threat to your, your Well, the reality is al- alcohol is the most harmful substance in the world, right? When you look at all the factors, A, it's the most prevalent. That's what people use the most. Mm-hmm. But there's all the 
direct and indirect consequences. So alcohol kills more people each year in Canada than opioids do. Wow. We rightfully are extremely alarmed about the opioid crisis in this country. We are not at all alarmed about our relationship with alcohol, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's part of our culture, right? But we have more Canadians dying from alcohol than opioids. So, and when you look at the other, so that's just the, the health side of things. But when you look at things like um, suicide, mm -hmm. about 50% of all suicides are intoxicated when they take their life. And most often it's on alcohol. Mm -hmm. When you wow. look at domestic violence or sexual assault, alcohol is almost always involved. When you look at many homicides, they would not have occurred if the individual had been sober. Mm -hmm. So alcohol is the most harmful substance, but we're not very comfortable talking about that because it's such an integral part of our culture, but it's a conversation that we need to have. When can we consider that someone has an alcohol problem and should should seek help? You know, I mean, among our, our friends or family, it's, it's as you said, it's culturally, it's there. Yeah. So, you know, when can we, is, are there some signs we could, we, we need to see from, from people and what we can do about it? So that's a complicated question, um, <laughs> although in some ways it isn't. So our threshold for alcohol problems is pretty darn high. So, you know, I live in Nova Scotia. Basically, in Nova Scotia, as long as you put food on the table, you put a roof over your family's head, and you don't hit anyone in your family, you cannot be an alcoholic, mm -hmm. right? Um, so the, the, the bar is so high that we have all kinds of problems as a result of that, right? The reality is if people are, um, you know, using a substance like alcohol and there are negative consequences to that, such as um, it's interfering with their ability to meet their responsibilities. So, you know, I assure my wife, you know, I'm, I'm going to go out and have a drink after work with, with Danny and then I'll pick up the dogs on my way home. And I come home Sunday, right? I, I didn't get the dogs. <laughs> I didn't come home. And in my head, I'm going to exactly do that, right? So um, not meeting my responsibilities. Um, of, often, you know, I don't make it to work on Fridays because the weekend starts on Thursday. Mm -hmm. I certainly frequently don't make it on Monday, right? And then eventually I don't have a job, right? Um, not um, being able to control my drinking. So I, I tell myself, I'm, I'm going to go out after work, I'm going to have one drink, then I'm going to get the dogs, and I'm, but I'm not able to do it, right? Mm -hmm. I, I can't stop. So not being able to control my drinking, wanting to be able to do that and not being able to do that, that leading to a lot of interpersonal conflict with my spouse, with my employer, with, with different people. Um the idea of, of craving, you know? So when I don't drink or try to not drink, so right now it's dry January, I decide that I'm going to do dry January and I'm going to not drink for the month of January. And I only make it to January 9th. That's 
reason to give me pause to think about my relationship with alcohol. Why, why was I not even able to go 10 days of mm -hmm. the 30? Um, and then the idea that, you know, if I don't drink, do I develop withdrawal symptoms, right? And that tells me that my, my body, you know, has developed physiological dependence on this. Mm -hmm. Or if I, you know, need to drink more to get the same effect because I'm becoming tolerant. Um, if I've given up other things that I might have been very interested in. So I'm, I'm not going to the pool to swim or I'm not going to the gym to work out or I'm not interested in um, socializing with friends. All I re my main leisure activity is the bottle, right? Mm -hmm. So all of these things put together, you don't have to have all of those features, but those are the things that are red flags. And unfortunately, it's usually our loved ones that are concerned long before we're concerned. And they often have the conversation with us and, you know, we dismiss that. We say, no, no, you know, you're overreacting. It's mm -hmm. not that bad. And so it's, you know, I treat a lot of uh, physicians with addiction issues because just like it, everybody else, they're at risk. And the average physician who suffers from alcoholism struggles with it for about 14 years before presenting before, help. before presenting for treatment, hmm. right? That's, That's a long time. Right? Yeah, it's a long time. Although you have to also realize, and most people don't, that 90% of people with addiction never receive treatment, mm -hmm. right? So that's really – I can't imagine any other disease where it's acceptable to us as a society that 90% of the sufferers don't receive treatment. You know, if we decided that, okay, you know – Dollars are very uh, scarce in the healthcare system. We're only going to provide treatment to 10% of people with cancer. Like, this would not be acceptable, right? It would be on the front page of the, all the newspapers, of right? Yeah. But w with addiction, because of the stigmatization, yeah, we're, we're kind of okay with that. Nobody's too alarmed about that. Mm -hmm. And some people, I guess, can still stay somewhat functional, with the addiction, so that's the that's the that's thing, right? So too. you can yeah. sort of putter along and have a lot of negative consequences, but but still kind of keep your head above water mm -hmm. until you can. Exactly. But even then, you know, it's still taking its toll, right? So you can have um, hazardous drinking without being an alcoholic. Right, mm -hmm. because it's a toxic substance. So you know, I may have four drinks a day every day, never more, never less. Um, meet all my responsibilities. Uh, my wife has three drinks every day, so there's no conflict between us whatsoever. But the reality is, is that that's harmful drinking, and and there's going to be consequences physiologically in terms of my risk for cancer, mm -hmm. uh, my risk for uh, liver disease. Uh, hypertension, all these uh, pancreatic illnesses, um, there's going to be consequences, even though I don't suffer from alcoholism, because alcohol is a toxic substance. Yeah, yeah exactly. So the harmfulness might be uh, and so we later, have, not, not you know, yes, in exactly. the present, but will be exactly. after a few years. And, uh, exactly. Yeah. And it's the same with uh, tobacco. That's why tobacco is so difficult to quit, mm -hmm. is because the vast majority of the consequences are very far down the road. And so we know what the consequences are, but we also know it's not today. 
mm-hmm. and it's not tomorrow. So I'll I'll quit next week or next month. And it's always next week or next month. And that's right. why it's so difficult to quit. It's because the consequences are so remote as opposed to I got pulled over drinking and driving. The consequences are right then, immediate, apparent, and in your face, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. Um, so that makes a big difference. Exactly. And maybe that's why also for some, some hard drugs, for example, you see the consequences much exactly. faster. Exactly. It's immediate. You know? exactly. Yeah, it's immediate. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, talking about drugs, cannabis recently became legal in Canada um, and starting at the age of 18 years old, just like alcohol. But in Quebec, you know, the Quebec government announced its in- intention to change. They would like to raise the bar to 21. Yep. And, you know, some uh, specialists mentioned raising it to 25 might even be, you know, uh, more appropriate. Uh, why is that? So the concern with cannabis is that, you know, it's a, a peculiar drug in the sense that the vast majority of users are under the age of 25. Like the vast majority of users are under the age of 25. Most people that use sort of grow out of it and sort of give it up in their late 20s. It'll be interesting to see with legalization if that changes, if people continue to use longer, and there's implications to that. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, the vast majority of users are under the age of 25, and that's exactly when we don't want them to use the drug. And so the reason for that is, um, despite what you've been told your entire life, adolescence really ends at about 25. Mm-hmm. And the reason that is, is because that's when your brain stops developing and has reached full maturation. Um, so if you're going to use substances like cannabis or other substances that have um, toxic effects on the brain, you're best off to do it after the age of 25 so that you're not interfering with your uh, brain development. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the concern. So we have all these young people consuming cannabis, um, interfering with their brain development, and, and it has consequences in terms of cognitive development, skill development, emotional development, emotional regulation skills. Um, but the big one that, that we're concerned about is that we know that um, cannabis use is associated with developing uh, mental health issues. And, and the one that we're most concerned about is psychosis because that mm-hmm. is, has the most negative implications on, on well-being going forward. So we've known this since the 80s, although people seem to still dismiss it. So you know, I think around 1986 we had the first, first study. And, and we know this because um, we've done – it's been replicated a number of times. But the initial study was looking at Swedes. So – Everybody in Sweden does military service at age 18. So so they have these captive cohorts that they follow, and, mm-hmm. and it's very interesting epidemiologically. So they looked at the, this group of 18-year-old kids, and they looked at how much they smoked cannabis uh, prior to entering the military. Mm-hmm. And then they followed them um, basically for the rest of their lives and looked at how many of these uh, individuals – Develop, went on to develop psychotic disorders. And, and so the definition of heavy use in that study was having smoked cannabis more than 50 times um, 
prior to age 18. So that's basically, okay. like, let's say you start only started at 17 and you only smoked once a week. Mm -hmm, exactly. uh, we have lots of adolescents that are daily smokers. So if you were in that cohort, you were six times more likely to develop a psychotic disorder than the general population. So your risk was dramatically increased. So cannabis is considered a modifiable risk factor for psychosis. So we can't change your genetics or your family history or your gender, and those are non-modifiable. But whether you do or do not consume cannabis, that's modifiable. Um, and when you use it and how you use it. So, so you know, we talked about low-risk drinking guidelines, sort of referred to those, but there's low-risk cannabis guidelines as well. Mm -hmm. So we know that, you know, A, try not to smoke cannabis before the age of 25. But we also know that's not that realistic because that's actually the main market. Yeah, exactly. Right? We, I mean, it's, it's been proven that it's... Uh, yeah, it's always been that way. And there. I can assure you, this is the market that the cannabis companies are targeting. So, you know, when we're looking at things like edibles and cannabis-infused gummy bears, like, I don't know about you, but, you know, I, I'm, you know, older... And I can't think of the last time I ate a gummy bear. Right? <laughs> so gummy bears are not targeted towards us, right? Yeah, for they're, sure. They're tar targeted towards kids, to be honest. So, so you know, this is the market. This is where the money is. This is where they're trying to target. So, unfortunately, one of the low-risk guidelines is, you know, after the age of 25, which most people are disregarding. Mm -hmm. But then there are other things like... Um, Lower THC content and higher CBD contact. CBD is a fascinating substrate, and it appears to be protective against developing psychosis. Unfortunately, when you look at what's selling, uh, for the most part, in the recreational market, it's as high THC as you can possibly get and yeah. as low CBD as you can possibly get. The medical market's a little bit different because they're more interested in the CBD. Um, so when we look at things like cannabis, often when I talk to parents, um, they say, well, you know, what's the big deal? My wife and I, we smoked a bit when we were growing up mm -hmm. and, it was, and, you know, we're fine. And my point is, yes. But what you were smoking and what's sold on the street now is like night and day. So, oh, exactly. So, you know, 20 years ago, even 20 years ago, it, you know, it was 4% THC. The vast majority of street cannabis now is well over 20. Mm -hmm. And if you're consuming things like shatter, it's like 90% THC. It's like pure THC. Yeah. Right. You know, we were talking about the psychosis some people experience, you know, after using marijuana. But I remember, uh, you know, as a teenager, seeing uh, some of uh, friends, you know, smoking weed and then seeing them a few years later. And they were not going into psychotic, uh, you know, experience, but it's like if their ambitions or their drive mm. was gone. Um, is, that, is there a name to that? Yeah, it's called amotivational syndrome. Okay. <laughs> so there is totally a name for that. Okay. <laughs> Because uh, that's, that's what I've seen, you know, on, on people yeah. uh, using uh, marijuana starting uh, teenagers. So you do, you do see that, um, particularly in people that are heavy users. Um, 
you know, it's, uh, you know, lots of people say that, you know, cannabis is really helpful for certain things like uh, creativity, for example, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it's not so great for things like, you know, I, I, I think I'll uh, take up mountain climbing or something like that. So, mm -hmm. so you know, it's very relaxing. It, it, you know, it, it, people feel very serene, um, but they're not probably going to jump up and run 10K. So for some people, what we see, particularly regular heavy users and, and adolescents, is it does seem to affect cognition. It does seem to affect motivation. It does seem to affect initiation. Um, and these are sort of the stereotypical kids that are down in the basement playing World of Warcraft when they're supposed to be at Sejep or whatever they're mm -hmm. supposed to be doing. Um, and, and so certainly that that's worrisome. Um, the... The public belief sort of online and the internet and things like that is, is cannabis is not addictive, and that's not true. Um, about 8% of the population who smokes cannabis is addicted, but that means about 92% aren't, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So like alcohol, you can probably have a healthy relationship with cannabis, or you can have an unhealthy relationship mm -hmm. with cannabis. So about 8% of the population is addicted to cannabis. Unless you started smoking cannabis as a teenager. Okay. Then it goes to 17%. And so that's a dramatic jump. Yeah. And the vast majority of people start smoking as teenagers. So um, for a substance that is supposedly not addictive, we treat a lot of people for cannabis addiction. And and I was reading something about Portage. Portage has a youth program, and apparently 88% of the young people that enter into that program are seeking treatment for cannabis dependence. So for something that's not addictive, there's a lot of people seeking treatment because they're struggling with their relationship with cannabis. For sure. And there's also the, the research aspect, because until recently, cultural and, you know, legal forces have somewhat restricted research, you know, on cannabis. Yes, for sure. And uh, so it was always focused on the negative impact mm -hmm. of cannabis. And mm -hmm. now the research make it, you know, easier because it's legal. You can get more, I, I guess, people saying, yes, I'm doing a research on cannabis and kind of researching on the positive aspect that mm -hmm. cannabis as a product can have on uh, medicine. Uh, and so, and and that is a, a key point, mm -hmm. right? So, to some extent, we don't know what we don't know. Um, a lot of it is poorly understood, poorly studied, poorly researched. Um, we want to make decisions based on evidence, right? And so now we have an opportunity to do more studies about potential you know, medicinal benefits. So, you know, what's the role of cannabinoids in the treatment of pain and the treatment of psychosis, um, uh, multiple sclerosis, um, epilepsy. So, so now we can do more and more studies and see, you know, where does this fit? Because um, right now there's a lot of things we don't know. Um, but it, there's also a lot of misinformation out there. So hopefully... This opportunity to do research will clarify things mm -hmm. and and uh, will give us a sense as to what the role is for these different uh, products. Because, you know, most of our medications, um, many of them come from plants originally. So when we look at things like opioids, which, you know, we see the negative side of opioids, but, you know, if, if I've 
fractured my femur, I want opioids, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, sure so, so they're a great drug, right, used appropriately. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when we look at, you know, if we went back to the 1800s, and if you look at what surgery looked like in the 1800s when we didn't have many of these different medications, that was not a good situation. No, it was just a right? shot of brandy. Exactly, and uh, bite your belt, <laughs> exactly. and off we go. You know that was not good. So, so there is really positive aspects of these things when used appropriately, right? Yeah. Um, but there are also pronounced uh, consequences and implication if we're not prescribing them appropriately, or if they're not being mm-hmm. used as uh, appropriately. The only good thing that has come out of this opioid crisis is that really is what steamrolled us having all these conversations about addictions and things because it was so alarming to so many people. Um, and so government has really begun to look at this seriously and is investing in these things. And then the non-treatment side of things is things like harm reduction, where you have safe injection sites, uh, overdose protection with naloxone kits. Mm-hmm. Um, I think at some stage, you know, we're going to have safe opioid guidelines, things like don't use alone so that, you know, if you overdose, Something there's somebody happens. there with you, mm-hmm. things like that. But it is a huge problem that unfortunately is not yet turning the tide, um, and there's a lot of work left still to be done. You know, you were saying, um, you know, what you, you wish for uh, for the future. If you'd have to, to, to tell us today what would be your ideal, uh, um, you know, plan for Canada to be able to treat addiction well and, and make sure, uh, you know, the well-being of the community, uh, Canadian community, what would it be? What would be your plan? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have unlimited resources, Big question. right? <laughs> Well, there's sort of direct and indirect. So there's preventative measures that I think are important. So, you know, if if it were up to me, we would really invest heavily in elementary school, teaching children um, how to self-soothe. So teaching children mindfulness. Because most people turn to substance use because they have a profound inability to tolerate negative emotional states. Mm -hmm. And they learn quickly that if I get drunk or if I get high, that numbs me. Mm -hmm. So if we could, you know, start very, very early and give children the skills to self-soothe, that would reduce the, you know, the the likelihood of them turning to substances and and dysfunctional, unhealthy ways of self-soothing. Um, there's, there's a lot of social determinants of addiction. So poverty, you know, uh, you, you're giving me a free reign, so I'm going to eliminate poverty. <laughs> so I'm going to, and I'm going to make Here's sure. Here's the magic wound. Yeah. And I'm going to make sure everyone's educated. Right. Um, I'm, Iceland, you probably didn't think we were going to talk about Iceland, but <laughs> Iceland had a huge problem with teen drinking. And they've had tremendous, tremendous success in addressing that. And the way they've done it is every family, the parents sign a contract. And the contract stipulates two things. That there will be a curfew that will be enforced where the kids have to be home and in bed. 
and that every kid is going to be in extracurricular activities. So instead of standing around the corners in the winter in Iceland and, and passing around a bottle, they're playing indoor soccer or they're mm-hmm. swimming or they're doing gymnastics or they're doing chess. And it's been tremendously, tremendously successful. It costs a lot of money. It costs a lot of money to have every kid playing indoor soccer and swimming and things like that. Yeah. But it's real. So we actually know what works. We just don't always have the will to to do it. Mm-hmm. Right? So those are sort of the preventative things that I would magically do. Start at a young um, age. But once the problem develops and people bon- have a bona fide addiction, the problem in North America is that many of the treatments that are available to people are not evidence based. Right, so my wish would be to have um, tremendous training to allow people to be able to deliver evidence-based treatments for addictions. Things like um, motivational interviewing, which we know is effective, cognitive behavioral therapy, which we know is effective, structured relapse prevention. So you know we. We really, really need to invest in evidence-based treatments. And we have a lot of them, right? We just have to invest in them. And that means training people to be able to deliver them. So that's just the psychosocial treatments, but also to really improve access to pharmacological treatments. So we talked about methadone and suboxone, but also things like, you know, anti-craving medications for alcoholism. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's very, very difficult for people, even when they're motivated to get treatment, to find evidence-based effective treatments in their communities. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of what we do... um, is not effective and it's not based on what we know it's based on what we did 30 years ago right mm-hmm. that being said what we did 30 years ago some of those things are st- are still super effective so things like aa and na and ga and sa and all the the 12 step super effective but the problem with addictions is that we have many treatments that know we know that are are, are effective and we also know there's no one treatment that's effective for everybody. Mm-hmm. So what works for one individual may not work for another and vice versa. And so it's providing people with as many options as possible. It can't be unlimited. Um, so that so that people can find a treatment that is effective for them as an individual and their needs. So, I, so mm-hmm. that's what I would do. All right. Well... You know, we're happy to see that, uh, well, we feel, uh, I mean, entrusted with, you know, having specialists like you looking after this and having all these great ideas to make, uh, you know, uh, improvements in the community towards addictions. So thank you for your time today. Uh, It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure talking to you. We could have talked about, uh, you know, this for like two hours. (laughs) I guess we'll have to welcome you again for another episode. (laughs) Thank you so much. Always happy to come back. (laughs) Thank Thank you. you so much. Thank you for listening to the Code Life podcast. For more information, I invite you to visit our website, codelife.ca. And don't forget to subscribe to our channel on iTunes, Spotify, or Buzzsprout to stay updated on new episodes to come. Until next time.